Well, our sermon last Sunday was the final sermon of what I call well, of what I call a spectacular summer sermon series on the servant songs of Scripture. I call it that because I just wanted to see if I could say that and get it out this morning. You will recall we we went from the first song of Scripture, Exodus chapter 14, the song of Moses, all the way through the prophets, and then to the New Testament songs, and then to the last song of Scripture, also ascribed to Moses uh, in Revelation chapter 15. From, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea to great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Friends, our one goal in all of our sermons here at PPC is to magnify the glory of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and to instill in you, as well as in our hearts, to induce in you a greater love, and wonder and appreciation for Christ with the fruit that comes from gratitude. So I preached this sermon to you this morning in the hopes that it will serve as a fitting epilogue to that summer series. In one of the sermons, we heard these words. God promises that if we abide in Christ by faith, then we will bear much fruit. For the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the gospel, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are not conditions for life in the Spirit. They are the fruit of the Spirit that comes from the gospel. They are the result of life in the Holy Spirit, that God, the Spirit that connects us to the vine. And this is his work He started it, and he will finish it. The sermon went on. But all of this comes with a warning that faith will take to heart. If we don't care at all about fruit in our lives, if that is not a concern of ours, that's dangerous. If God never gets to overrule your plans, your dreams, then beware. Because there is a God in that situation, but it is you. He asked When was the last time you had to die to something you wanted because you knew that you had to in order to be obedient to God's word? And you found that you could not sacrifice what was right for what was easy. He concluded, the warnings of Scripture should cause us to a fear that then drives us back to Christ in greater faith greater love, greater devotion, greater gratitude. And that, friends, is the topic of our sermon this morning. But first, a word of full disclosure. This is a topical sermon. And to make matters worse, it's a topical sermon based on one verse in the Bible. Now, it is said, especially in Reformed circles, that uh, for every 99 textual uh, sermons that the preacher preaches, he could preach no more than one topical sermon. 
one topical for every 99 textual. And then when he preaches that topical sermon, he should apologize to his congregation the next Sunday. I've written this in such a way that it is kind of a collection, a smorgasbord, if you will, of quotes uh, from my favorite authors, favorite books off the shelf on this subject of idolatry. The title of today's sermon is A Final Word. A Final Word. And as I was thinking about that, a final word, last words, uh, my mind went wandering a bit uh, to the famous last words of film, literature, history. We all remember the famous last words spoken by Dorothy when she woke up from her dream and she said to her aunt, Auntie M, there's no place like home. We all remember the famous last words spoken by Rhett Butler to Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind in answer to her question, but where shall I go? Words that I will not repeat in this sermon this morning. But what about Back to the Future when Doc says to Marty McFly, roads, where we're going, we don't need roads. Or Toy Story 3, which to my mind should have been the last Toy Story and to my memory was the last Toy Story. When Andy, who's all grown up, gives his very favorite toys, Buzz Lightyear and Woody, to a young girl that he knows will take care of them. And as he gets in his car and drives away, Woody, always Andy's favorite toy, utters the final bittersweet words of the film. So long, partner. Well, that's film. What about literature? Who hasn't heard the famous last words of A Tale of Two Cities spoken by Sidney Carton as he was about to face execution by guillotine? You remember the words, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done before. Well, film, literature, that's art. What about history? What about real life when you cannot script your words? 22 years ago, tomorrow, we heard the immortal words of an immeasurable courage spoken by Todd Beamer, who had made up his mind to stop Flight 93 before it could be used by terrorists to take many more lives. Two words which, along with the plane that he was on, have gone down in history. You remember those words? Let's roll. 36 years earlier, we have recorded the final words of Winston Churchill. According to the New York Times, his last words were as austere as they were disturbing. Before he slipped into a nine-day coma from which he never awoke, he said to his son-in-law, I'm bored with it all. That was in January of 1965. But finally, let's go back in history to another January day, New Year's Day, 28 years prior to the death of the much more famous Winston Churchill. But not to us. We have preserved in a telegraph the famous last words of New Testament scholar J. Gresham Machen to his friend and his colleague, Dr. John Murray. 
And these were those words. I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. You see, in the final words of one, Churchill, we hear despair. In the other, we hear only hope. For you see, Machen had an everlasting hope expressed in his final words. Hope in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ in thought, in word, and in deed. Christ's perfect obedience from the cradle to the cross. Now, the point of this trip down memory lane is not that we would sit and ponder these movie classics, especially Toy Story 3, but to highlight the importance of the last words that we read and we hear in the epistle to the church written by the apostle John. Here we have the final words of John's letter to the church. Now you might say, well, what about 2 John and what about 3 John? Well, recall the 2 John is written to the elect lady and her children, and 3 John is written to his beloved Gaius, his beloved in the faith. But these words were written to the church that he loved when he was an old man. John, the beloved apostle. And his last words? They were a warning against idolatry. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Please hear the solemnity, the sobriety, the earnestness, and the urgency of John's final words. Man's greatest need, it is said, is to know what is his greatest need. And man's greatest need is to know divine forgiveness, reconciliation, atonement, redemption, and to know through the gospel that God has provided for his greatest need in the person of Jesus Christ. And once man knows his greatest need and God's solution to that greatest, deepest, everlasting need, then man knows what his greatest purpose is in life. Then man knows his identity, who he is, and why he exists. Man's greatest need is to know what is his greatest need. We're going to be talking this morning about idolatry, idolatry in our day and age. And you know, we have the easy targets, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and the addictions that come from them. I do want to mention one of my favorite books by Ed Welsh, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. He writes, The actual descent into addiction begins without much fanfare, but when there's no vigilance at the first small steps, they eventually then lead to an out-of-control downward spiral. But apart from these easy targets, we should understand that there is nothing in this life, in this good life, with all of God's good gifts, that we, because of our sin nature, cannot turn into an idol, to name a few. Your feelings. Love, be it the love of friendship or romantic love, entertainment, video games, recreation, sports, running, bicycling, 
and adrenaline addiction, your political affiliation and sense of patriotism, your reputation and legacy, your sense of success and your public image, your grades, awards, public acclaim, your appearance, food, drink, and the clothing that you wear, your hobbies, woodworking or quilting with the obligatory iced tea for the woodworker and chamomile tea for the quilter, your desire for security and safety, your desire to travel, to see the world, or your longing for home, your longing for your earthly home, your house and gardens, which are to be kept perfectly, that perhaps someday they would appear in better homes and gardens. Your regimen, your self-discipline, CrossFit workouts, personal hygiene, your sleep. The list goes on and on. And the list can also include your church, your denomination, and of course, your family. Yes, your children, your children's children. And if God grants you years, your great-grandchildren. And even in one sense, you can make an idol out of God. You cannot make an idol out of God, the true and living God, for as Paul says, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. But you can worship a God who is not the God of the Bible. Listen to the next author, J.C. Riley. Beware of manufacturing a God of your own a God who is all mercy but not just, a God who is all love but not holy, a God who has a heaven for everybody but a hell for no one. Such a God is an idol of your own, as truly an idol as any snake or crocodile in an Egyptian temple. I would add Mayan temple. The hands of your own fancy and sentimentality have made him. He is not the God of the Bible. And besides the God of the Bible, there is no God at all. We know the names in the Old Testament, strange names, almost unpronounceable. Baal, Baal Peor, Moloch, Dagon, Chemosh, Ashtaroth, or on the other side of the world, Quetzalcoatl. The cause of all idolatry is the natural corruption of man's heart, which is why Calvin understood that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. So then from these books that I, and essays that I have read over the years, things, the gleanings of an old man uh, that I would like to share with you in, in, under three headings this morning, how it is that we can keep ourselves from idols. What can we do? in order to hear and to heed the final words of John the Apostle, his very last verse. One, you have to identify, prayerfully identify, the idols of your heart. Friends, you can't fight what you can't see or what you won't see. You know, blind spots are dangerous. Drivers don't risk their own lives and your life as well by changing lanes right into you. They have a blind spot, and unfortunately, you are in it. 
Well, it is our tendency of our human hearts, yes, even as believers, that we can have massive blind spots. And one of them I've seen throughout my life, it is hearing but not listening. James says in chapter 1, verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I love the way the paraphrase called the message puts it. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a listener when you are anything but letting the word go in one ear and out the other. Rather, act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea who they are or what they look like. And of course, we have the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who said, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. In order to identify blind spots, you have to be willing to examine your heart. I'm going to say that again. You have to be willing to examine your heart. You need to ask what questions. What about the conflict that I am currently feeling started this? What made me angry? What did I say in response? Was I proud of my tongue? Did I make matters worse with a sharp, sarcastic tongue to what it was that was causing my frustration? But we need to move on from the what questions to help us identify the idols of our hearts. Next author, David Paulison. We need to ask why questions. He writes this. The deep question of motivation is not what is motivating me. The final question is who is the master of this pattern of thought, this pattern of feeling, this pattern of behavior? In the biblical view, we are all religious, inevitably bound to one God or another. People do not have needs. They have masters. We do not have needs. We have masters, lords, gods, be they oneself, other people, valued objects, or Satan himself. The real question is, who, other than the true God, is my God? And you know the things about these gods is that they always promise, but they cannot and they do not ever deliver. And that, dear friends, is always the outcome of idolatry. It ends with dissatisfaction. Why? Because you've set your heart on something other than the God who alone satisfies. And foolishly, you believe your heart. And your heart is deceiving you. Second principle. In the words of the one and only Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. You must be vigilant, and you must be diligent in being vigilant. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Just two months ago, this came to my mind as I heard the governor, governor of New York, Phil Scott, commenting on the extremely dangerous flash flooding throughout his state. He, on a newscast, he said this, to, the, to, to his constituents of Vermont. This isn't over, and it won't be over after this storm, he said. 
On Sunday, unfortunately, there is another chance for a very heavy rain statewide. I know this is hard news for many, and folks will want to think this is over as soon as the weather breaks on Saturday. But it is critical that Vermonters understand that we need to remain vigilant. We need to be prepared. We cannot be complacent. The second principle, we need to remain vigilant and we cannot become complacent. Proverbs 4.23, you know it. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Next author. Sanctification or Christian growth is a process, and it can seem slow. Growth doesn't come as quickly as we would like, and it isn't always a straight line. But by God's grace, as we abide in Christ, practicing daily faith and repentance, we are made more and more like Jesus. Embarrassing true confessions here from the pulpit. I was the short fat kid in my elementary school. Yes, I was the short fat kid. You know, now it's one thing if a couple of the girls, some of the girls are taller than you are. But when all of the girls in the entire school are taller than you are, well, that can cause a problem. And every day I would run home to my mom and I would say, Mom, quick, get the yardstick. I want to stand on the door jam to the living room and I want you to measure my height and see if I've grown at all. Eventually she said, David, you will grow over time, but you won't notice that growth all in one day. Sanctification comes over time. Author Mary Kostenberger pointed this out. Yes, it comes over time. It is the Holy Spirit's work in your heart and life. But you need to know that sanctification is not optional. Holiness matters for every single believer. Yes. Yes. But at the same time, in the words of the venerable DC talk. What if I stumble? What if I fall? What if I lose my step and make fools of us all? Will the love continue when my walk becomes a crawl? What if I stumble? What if I fall? The answer to the question, will the love continue, is an emphatic yes from God's promise. Proverbs 24, for though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. Friends, as surely as Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and lives to intercede, you too will rise up in the end. And when is that? When is the end? Well, we know from the Apostle Paul in Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or Paul to Timothy, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have entrusted to him against that day. That day, that is when the sinner will rise, will rise victoriously, never to fall, never to fail again. That day either will be when you go to be with him or he comes again to gather you together with all of the saints and because it ain't over till it's over, therefore, third principle related to the second, you have to persevere. You need to persevere. Remember Acts 21? The believers of Ephesus were abandoning their idols. The world for them, as for the new believers in Thessalonica, 
was turned right side up. They were exchanging the lie for the truth. And for that truth, Jesus Christ, instead of idols, they were willing to endure great hardship and persecution. The question is, are we? Now, again, there are two ways that you can answer that question. They will help you in answering the question. We've already alluded to the one. Ask yourself, what makes you angry? John Fawcett, author John Fawcett, said this, When the loss of any temporal enjoyment casts us into excessive anger or despondency, it is evident that we have lost, that what we have lost was the object of our idolatrous love, our disordered desire. Children, boys, if your sister is playing with your Buzz Lightyear, girls, if your brother is playing with your Elsa wand, I think it was Elsa, okay, even if he's using it as a baseball bat, and you fly into a rage simply because your brother or your sister has your toy, then there's a problem there. And parents, if you examine your heart, you'll probably find that you're a lot like your kids. It's just that the toys are different. The second question, where does your mind go when you are at leisure? This was brought to our attention by Tim, the Reverend Tim Keller. Where does your mind go when you are at leisure? When you are not on duty, either as a teacher or a student, a full-time mom, and you say to me, what leisure? I'm a full-time mom. As a first responder, a traveling salesman, or a traveling nurse, as a missionary, a minister, or a mechanic. Keller writes, the real God of your heart is what your thoughts automatically go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. We need to always remember and call to mind and heart that God desires our happiness. He desires our joy, our satisfaction. God desires that our desires not center in any of the good things of this life, but that they center in him alone. So let us examine ourselves to rid ourselves of any idolatry, be it, a, be it a golden calf or a golden parachute for our retirement years. How does the Apostle Paul, I'm sorry, how does the Apostle John end his letter? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. with the idea, the image of pressing on, of pressing on. You remember his words. They're beautiful. Not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the cure for our idolatry and our tendency to form idols. How are we to persevere and keep idols, ourselves from idols? The remedy is only to be found in Christ. The one who will not share his glory with an idol has earned our loyalty, our fidelity once and for all 
by his death on the cross. He has shown you the full extent of his love, and he has earned your love, that you can love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. Getting toward the last of the authors, I'm quoting our Elizabeth Fitzpatrick. She writes, Delighting to do God's will means turning from the deception that joy lies elsewhere, outside obedient fellowship with him. We need consistently to disbelieve the imaginations that appear sweeter than God's loving kindness. In order to do this, we'll have to be convinced that his presence is the loveliest treasure that there is. How? We must pray. Only the Holy Spirit can make him look that good, to make him look as he truly is. And you will come to see that your desires for anything else, for anyone else, are much too feeble in comparison to Jesus Christ. We know the words of the next to the last author, C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory. He writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are too easily pleased. End quote. So let's not think that idolatry is an old-fashioned sin. You know, silly images fashioned by human hands of a God who is deaf and dumb and blind and quite frankly, very ugly. Images before which we are never likely to bow the head or bend the knee. No, our idols are the idols of the heart in the words of Ezekiel. So we do well to look into our own hearts, see the seeds of idolatry there. We should remember the words of the Apostle John. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Or the Apostle Paul, flee from idolatry. We know 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with a temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may bear up. The very next verse after that verse, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Do you remember the final words of Gandalf the Grey? before he became Gandalf the White. When he was caught in the fiery whip of the demon Balrog, just before he fell into the abyss, he turned to his friends and cried out in a soft voice filled with urgency, Run! Run, you fools! That's my best impression of Gandalf. Paul says, flee from idolatry. This is a battle. But the battle belongs to the Lord. Last author, John Piper. Every Christian feels an ongoing civil war on the inside in our twisted loves and longings. We both love God and find in us the remains of treasonous impulse against the God we love. In our attraction to sin, the Bible explains this internal war in Romans 7, where Paul cries out, who will deliver me? from this body of death? This is the question. Will you make peace with your sin and look the other way? 
or rather will you make war with your sin all the days of your life until your body is finally redeemed at the resurrection, end quote. I didn't say earlier in the sermon, I meant to say that I was going to uh, save one thing that we can turn into an idol because of our sinful inclinations and we can ruin things that are meant as good gifts. Uh, and I skipped right over it. That last thing that I was going to mention in the context of family, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, what can we make an idol out of? Marriage. Marriage. Friends, the sands of time are sinking. Individually, every 24 hours, you are one day closer to death. And I'm going to take the opportunity here to say to the men of the midweek men's reading group that there is no truth to the rumor that Dr. Machen was my professor. Uh, that, is, that, that is an ugly rumor that's being spread around. Uh, but every 24 hours, you are one day closer to death, both individually and culturally. We live in a day of utter confusion, confusion in the broader culture, when some, due to their atheistic pre-commitment to non-binary gender fluidity, cannot even define the word woman. But there's a degree of confusion even in the church caused by an idolatrous concept of love and marriage. Author Doug Wilson was right when he wrote, a reason that so many are so miserable in so many marriages is that they have made an idol of marriage. The primary purpose of marriage is not that you both will live happily ever after. It is not your personal happiness and your personal fulfillment. Rather, the chief end, the primary purpose of marriage is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. She was a friend of a friend. She was a friend of a friend. Our friend... The friend in the middle invited my wife Jane to lunch when she told her this story. You see, her friend, uh, she wanted to spend time with her friend to see how she was doing because it had been six months or so since her beloved husband of many years went to be with the Lord. So our friend asked her, how are you doing? And she said, you know, my husband and I like just go for drives, spontaneously, no particular destination, just to spend time going for drives. Now, mind you, this was before the GPS. And we weren't in any particular hurry, and we weren't in any part, uh, particular place to go. But there was one time when I had my doubts, and I asked my husband, are we lost? And because he didn't answer, a couple minutes passed, and I asked him again, are we lost? And he took his free hand, and with it he squeezed my hand. And he said, honey, we're not lost. We are on an adventure. And we both laughed. And that became part of the daily parlance of our marriage. At times, I would say it, and he would be thinking it. At times, he would say it, and I would be thinking it. And each and every time, we would laugh. But now that he's gone, there are no more adventures. I'm just lost.
Oh, make no mistake, she did not feel finally lost. Her faith in Christ was too strong for that, but she was going through a time, through a season of intense loneliness, which feels like being lost. But she had Christ, the faithful bridegroom, to fill her heart and to satisfy her with the knowledge of the fact that for so many years she had a love, a human love, in a divine bridegroom. What do I want my final words to be? Well, you know me. They'll probably come from a hymn. (laughs) Probably this hymn. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. And because we have that assurance, our gaze is to be on Jesus Christ, who satisfies us with good things. As in the words of the hymn we are about to sing, the bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Pray with me.